Hi, Arrow. How are you doing today, sir? Oh, great. It's publication day. Oh, my God. That's got to be exciting for you because but at the same time, because I've gone through that experience, you're nervous as hell as well because you, you don't know what, what's going to happen. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. But it's a it's a good kind of energy. <laughs> that's that's a part of, of the journey of writing that a lot of readers don't get to experience with us. And, and it's like but but I love the fact that we can talk about it so that they can get more yeah. excited about the book. Thank you so much. You know what's really interesting about your writing? Because I like to watch a lot of court TV, and I don't understand it. I don't even understand um, uh, Steve Harvey with his court TV game that he does. But you really simplify it to where we get into it, and we understand what is happening. Thank you. That's a huge compliment. I I don't really know what to compare it to. It's just the way I write. Mm -hmm. Well, Mark Twain said the best way to write is in your own accent, and, and that's exactly what you're doing as a writer. Thank you so much. To bring it together, Zenith Man. I mean, this is about death, love, redemption, and it's in a courtroom in Georgia. Boy, you couldn't have asked for a better time to write a book about a Georgia courtroom. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> maybe, maybe, uh, Maybe a only slightly more difficult client than some of my friends are representing in Atlanta. <laughs> now, you went into this, though, with a true connection. What what was your connection so that readers can, you know, they don't have to sit here and think that, oh, this was just made up. It was not just made up. No, it, it's absolutely everything in the book is true. Uh, the 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 testimony from the stand is from directly from trial transcript. Um, and And over half the book is trial. And so uh, I grew up there. Uh, my sister went to high school with Alvin. He was always considered odd and a, a bit of a social outcast. Um, but there was a, a kind of a pride about Alvin. There was a, a, a dignity that he kind of maintained. Uh, that and, and he did throughout my representation, even though his life seemed to be falling apart. But my life was kind of falling apart, too. I, I ran for uh, United States Congress after four terms in the Georgia legislature, and I got the hell beat out of me. It was like a complete, uh, they, they used to say uh, the only cure for politics is embalming fluid. Well, let me tell you, I was cremated. Uh, there was no chance that I was going to get back in, in the political world. So I was kind of lost. And uh, suddenly this case happened. And Alvin really literally was stalking me on the street, uh, did not know how to speak to me the first couple of times we passed, oh, but I realized that we were meeting by design. He was waiting at a phone booth stand and crossing uh, the intersection just as I was crossing for three days in a row. So I opened up the conversation and um, even though I thought that he was appreciating my advice. He was not taking it. Mm. And he began to exhibit an extreme uh, resistance to my advice, yet he would come back to me. Oh, wow. And, and, and so he became an extremely difficult client and one that I really thought about, should I be doing this really right now? And then the congressman called. The guy that had just dispatched my, my candidacy and I thought, well, wow, I wonder what he's calling me for. And I pick up the phone and he says, keep Alvin Ridley away from my congressional offices. Ooh. He's scaring the ladies there. He's ordering me now. It's almost like, you know, 
criminal defense lawyer, you know, you're, you're not worthy of Congress and we showed you you weren't. So now I'm ordering you to keep your client away. Well, that inspired me. <laughs> but at the same time, I didn't want to hurt Alvin's feelings because he had this reverence for the federal government. He, he hated local and state government, but he always thought federal government was going to save him. So I told him, I said, uh, look, the congressman called. He hates me so much that if you or I show up at his congressional offices, he's going to arrest everybody. And I can't afford to be arrested, Alvin. Can we just stay away from his offices? And I said, you know what? If you just go along and help me help you and stay away from his offices, when this is all over, I'll show you where he lives. Wow. And that, that kind of satisfied him. <laughs> I had no real intention of showing him where the congressman lived, but, uh, you know, congressman had a nice wife, nice family. I wasn't going to do that to him. I wasn't going to do that to Alvin, you know, get him in a situation, get arrested. But I could put it off for down the road by telling him that. You know, what's so funny is that that the, the way that you just shared that where you, you finally created that connection is the way that we do it here in the South. You, you, you could have just said, well, bless your heart. And then all of a sudden it all begins because when, once you once you open up that idea where you can get into somebody's imagination, especially here in the South, that friendship, that connection, it can go a long ways. And it has. Well, it has. Alvin uh, and I go to lunch uh, twice a week now. Wow. He's about to turn 82. The case was 25 years ago, but only three years ago, Arrow, only three years ago did I learn that Alvin is on the autism spectrum. I was wondering. Yeah. And that explained everything about how he was misunderstood and misjudged and how he misunderstood and misjudged my um, intentions. And, and so it was a processing issue and that's all autism is. It doesn't affect, uh, Alvin is actually quite smart, mm -hmm. but, but his processing was different than ours or mine. I think we all plot out differently in this cosmic spectrum in some ways. Uh, for example, I'm I'm a child of an alcoholic parent, and so a loving alcoholic parent uh, who was never mean, but just was sad. And mm -hmm. I was always trying to micromanage the moment uh, to where things would be smooth sailing. And I applied that to everything in my life, which was not good for relationships and marriages, and really not good for ordering Alvin Ridley around. So he and I had some great difficulties, uh, complete uh, great battles. At some point, I was so tired of hearing him want to talk about the county taking his van mm -hmm. that I just, in exasperation, you know, here he is winding up with that story again. And I just say, oh, Lord, <laughs> like here it comes again. <laughs> Alvin thought I was praying. And he immediately stopped and bowed his head. And I thought, I can work with this. Mm. And so I immediately began to incorporate my legal advice to him in the form of prayer. Mm. And Alvin would listen very patiently to my long prayers of legal advice. And then at the end of them, he would nod his head and say, I'll think about it. Yeah. And that, you know, to me, that was enough. It kept us from screaming at each other anymore. And it always worked. Uh, 
of course, at the end of the book, I'm really praying because I, I didn't know if I could do enough for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, we did not have the autism diagnosis. I stumbled into just by accident finding the evidence that I think cleared him. And that was his wife's complete unexpected journal of her life, Mm -hmm. loose leaf journal. She had a condition in, in, in addition to epilepsy called hypergraphia, where she was compelled to write constantly. And it was those writings that allowed me to show the juror, this woman has not been held captive in a basement for 30 years. This woman, look, she wrote three U.S. presidents. She wrote all these television ministers. She wrote songs. She wrote the cast of the Waltons, this very (laughs) very, uh, wholesome show. She was obsessed with the actor, director, and producer, Ron Howard. I introduced some of her Ron Howard writings at trial to show the jury this woman was plugged into popular culture. She was, uh, but she also wrote why she never wanted to go out. She wrote about the difficulties they were having with her family. She wrote why she didn't go to her father's funeral. And, And she wrote about talking to sheriffs over the years who came to check on her sent by her family, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So it it just was a a colossal rush to judgment. Um, Interestingly, I got to kind of go back in my own town's history. I pulled up witnesses that were a retired pharmacist and a, a retired doctor, the guy that delivered me. I put him on the stand because he had treated Virginia. But at some point, Virginia quit going to the doctor. So they just started putting the medicine in Alvin's name. Mm. And and one of her writings in September of 1977 was God told her to stop taking her medicine. Oh, boy. She had difficulty with the medicine sometimes, a reaction to it. it. Dutifully, Alvin kept getting her the medicine. And because he's a pack rat, we had all these empty bottles leading up to September of 1977, followed by all these full bottles. So she had the medicine there had she decided to take it. First of all, as as a writer and somebody who knows the law, was this, when, the more and more you dug into this story, it's, it's almost like one man's trash is another man's treasure. You got the treasure and you're sharing it with the readers now about, you know, A, may, we need to be more patient with people that we don't understand and don't label them, get to know them, and B, you know, you know learn about them and see if there's something that they need to be speaking to us about. Arrow, there are five and a half million estimated Uh, adults with autism who have never been diagnosed. Oh my God. If they are having encounters with government officials, I guarantee there are misjudgments, miscommunications, and uh, uh, just um, misunderstandings. Yeah. And I currently am representing a young man with autism who's the result in the encounter ended up in a felony obstruction charge. And, And that's usually the charge that it ends up being because of encounters with officers because they they they're not understanding an, uh, an order mm-hmm. especially mm-hmm. if it's not given a, a directly uh, uh you know their figurative speech is just another language 
Uh, and, you know, I learned that after Jesus convinced Alvin to testify against my advice, uh, and we had a word about that, but that was Alvin's right. And it turns out Jesus is a pretty good lawyer, I think, because uh, he knew Alvin was going to do well. I did not know or think Alvin was going to do well. Wow. But uh, as an Atlanta reporter, uh, Jack Warner wrote, Alvin Ridley mounted the witness stand that he had been trying to attain for 30 years. All of his civil litigation that fell apart, he got to complain about it all. <laughs> and the jurors now had watched his strange ways and watched me stomping roaches throughout the trial enough to know that this was a, a unique character, that he is not necessarily sinister like everybody thought, but he is just a unique individual. And the autism diagnosis helps explain that and hopefully will give everybody a cautionary tale. Now, your listeners will remember this story from season five, episode nine of Forensic Files. Really? And also from Bill Curtis's uh, American Justice on A&E and also on uh, NPR's Snap Judgment. But all of these stories were done before Alvin's autism diagnosis. Mm. So when that happened three years ago, suddenly the book just started writing itself Yep. because I had all this, these stories bottled up, but I just could not satisfactorily have a book that just said, well, yeah, Alvin's just this odd guy, <laughs> you know, this explained it. And it was a former juror that suggested that he may have autism. Wow. And, and, and I'll tell you, I've learned so much about autism. Um, I have a great, deal of respect for Alvin. He, he, he has a dignity about him, even though he doesn't like to bathe. He, he kind of likes to have the, uh, aura of a person who always needs your help. Mm -hmm. But tonight he's wearing a $400 suit wow. to the Jimmy Carter presidential library in Atlanta for our book launch. Oh my so, God. Uh, oh my uh, he's very excited about it. He, 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 he hopes he gets a couple of girlfriends, but he's obsessed <laughs> with this TV show called Cheaters. Yep. And he's afraid Cheaters is going to roll up on him. <laughs> You've got to come back to this show anytime in the future, McCracken. You're just down the highway from me. I'm up here in Charlotte. So if you're up here promoting yeah. that book, you got we got to get together and have a face-to-face. -face. I would love to. I'll, I'll come to you. <laughs> Excellent. We'll do it. We'll do it. Well, you be brilliant today, okay, sir? Hey, tell, tell your listeners it's the... Zenith man with the kissing couple on the front. And that's Alvin in Virginia in 1965. I love it. I love it. Well, you have a brilliant day. Thank you so much, Arrow.